Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. My name's Roy Taylor. I'll be presenting the show today. Freedom of Species brings animal activism to the airwaves. We are a program dedicated to animal protection, animal conservation, animal rights, and most importantly, animal appreciation. We're broadcasting the 3CR studios, Smith Street, Collingwood, in Melbourne, Victoria. Going out on the internet at 3cr.org.au and our own website, freedomofspecies.org. Um, you can get our previous shows on iTunes. Just search for Freedom of Species. And also, our previous shows are also on our website, freedomofspecies.org. And on today's show, we've got a few things. Um, we have got some coverage uh, by myself, of the jumps racing in South Australia at Oak Bank. That was Easter weekend. And also we've got a pre-recorded interview with uh, someone that goes by the name The Sea Janitor. And uh, she'll be talking about a project that she's been doing uh, in South Australia to clear the debris out from jetties around Adelaide. But more importantly, also make people aware of the pollution that there is out there uh, underneath the uh, jetties. And uh, we're going to have a little chat about the uh, event that was on in Adelaide last weekend. Uh, I was over there, flew over there on the on the Friday night, ready for two days of horse racing. This is the Oak Bank Easter Racing Carnival, and uh, I volunteer for the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses, um, horseracingkills.org, who have been running campaigns against jumps racing now since, oh, 2008, I believe, 2008, 2009. And over the years, uh, College of Protection of Racehorses had some, well, close, close misses in terms of success. Uh, and then jumps racing, I think it was in 2011, uh, the Victorian uh, racing industry made a board decision to end jumps racing in Victoria. Unfortunately, a few months later, change of board meant a change of decision. However, we did become quite close to seeing an end of jumps racing in Victoria. Now, jumps racing, interesting subject actually, because I believe that the protests against jumps racing in Australia commenced in the 1800s. So there is nothing more Australian than protesting against jumps racing. It really is. The opposition to jumps racing is part of the culture of Australia through and through. And it has now been got rid of in every state in this country and territory, except for two places, um, maybe the backward states, South Australia and Victoria. Um, it is illegal to organise a jumps race in New South Wales, 
um, since it was made part of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. So no organising of jumps races there, or you will be in trouble with the law. However, uh, the law is a fickle thing, and you can cross the border and go about organising a jumps race in Victoria and South Australia. Now, the uh, racing industry has been increasingly embarrassed by jumps racing in Victoria, uh, so much so it's gone out of many of the metropolitan racetracks. It is no longer in uh, Mooney Valley, or Murder Valley, as it would be appropriate to call it. I think uh, Mooney Valley Racing Track got a little bit embarrassed about horses dying on their track. Uh, It's still there, Sandown, um, Cranbourne, and out in the country, at places like Warnable. And not this coming week, but the one after, is the three-day Warnable race meeting. And I'm going to be attending there for the three days, protesting against the jumps racing there. Uh, And any listeners that can make it out to Warnable on the days of the racing, certainly for the Thursday, but we'll have a presence on the Tuesday and Wednesday, Please, if you can make it to Warnable to show your solidarity with the protesters, that would be most appreciated. Um, If you want more information, go to the website of the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses. That's horseracingkills.org. Or is it .com? I will have to confirm that in one moment. Um, I forgot my own website there. But search for the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses on Google. And uh, you will find the website there. Just search for Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. And I say we'll get protesting at Warnable. Now, we've just had a big weekend, the Coalition, because we went to Oakbank, South Australia, to support the local community volunteers um, in South Australia protesting against these horse races. And I've got some interesting newspaper clippings which I'm going to just read out. This is from the Adelaide Advertiser. Um, And in fact, I've got newspapers here from four days. And you can just see the progression over the course of the... um, over the course of the four days. We'll start with newspaper from... This is the Adelaide Advertiser on April the 14th. Now, April the 14th uh, was the Friday. So this is the day before the first racing carnival day. The first day, the two big days are the Saturday and the Monday at Easter. So this is the Adelaide Advertiser, and the headline is More than 30,000 racegoers expected to attend first day of Oakbank Easter Racing Carnival. All starts with lots of enthusiasm here. Oakbank organisers hope more than 30,000 people will flock to the historic Easter Racing Carnival on Saturday, bolstered by a new food and drink precinct and sunny weather. The two-day picnic race meeting also on Easter Monday will be the first for uh, Barney Gask in his new new role as chair of the Oak Bank Racing Club. Ah, and he's the chap that replaced John Glatz, who spent 25 years in the position uh, after he announced he was stepping down. Well, I don't think Mr. Glatz was uh, enjoying um, his role of fronting um, the club when the horses were dying on the track. Although organisers hope to match or better than last year's Saturday t- attendance of 34,975, Mr Gas said they'll be happy to welcome 10,000 to 15,000 people on the Monday public holiday. 
Um, so also a new price of $15 subject to a $3 booking fee for all general admission tickets down from $25 last year has been introduced for Easter Monday to encourage people to attend both race days. Now, this is very interesting because years ago, years ago, when this really was a big event, Oak Bank Racing Carnival used to get 90,000 people plus attending. 90,000. And now, on the Saturday, they were expecting 30,000. And it was a sunny day. They've dropped the ticket prices to, from tre- by two-fifths, down from $25 to $15. And then they'd be happy to welcome 10,000 to 15,000. Now, I cannot help but believe the actions of a small group of dedicated community volunteers that's of different groups as well as the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses have really made a difference to improve the world down at South Australia um, Oak Bank Racing Carnival and really um, cause a lot of economic hardship for the industry in their, in their goal of uh, killing horses. Well, uh, of holding races where horses die, actually. Um, Mr. Gask in the interview says, we know from our research the majority there because of jumps racing. I think without it, our fear is that we'll become just another race meeting. The point of difference is we've, we've got disappears. Well, you're just another horse race. That's exactly what you are. What you are is a money-making comp- corporation um, for the gambling industry. Uh, that's my comment there, not in the newspaper. Now, let's progress one day onwards. April 15th. Uh, This is the actual day. This is the Saturday. Adelaide Advertiser. Here we go. Nasty Four marks opening jumps race at Oak Bank. Horth euthanized. Well, tragic. That's my commentary now. Let's get back to the newspaper. The first jumps race of the Oak Bank Easter Carnival has been marred by a nasty fall. The 12 runners in the summer-led hurdle negotiated all but the final fence of the 2900 metres. 2.9 kilometres, with favourite Renew and second place-getter Distillation clearing out the field. Um, But Sea Raven and Wheeler Fortune, who were out of contention, were involved in a fall at the final obstacle when the former brought down Wheeler Fortune, who cleared the last fence cleanly. And it says, both uh, further down the the article, uh, the New Zealand five-year-old gelding, trained by champion horseman John Wheeler, was euthanized by course veterinarians just minutes after the race had finished. So let's just analyze that sentence. The near-old five-year-old gelding, so this is a young five-year-old horse, has been castrated for corporate greed, trained by a champion horseman. What does training mean? That means getting whipped and kept in captivity and was euthanized. Now, the term euthanasia typically means the ending of life for the animal's benefit. Well... If that was euthanasia, it's probably the first thing ever in its entire life that's been done for its own benefit. It was euthanized by court vet- course veterinarians. <sighs> what kind of person, I don't know, learns veterinary science to kill horses for the gambling industry? Oh, it's beyond me. Uh, both jockeys fortunately escaped significant industry. Um, and Barney Gask, Oak Bank Racing Chairman, said, with how much effort we've put into this today to make it enjoyable for everybody, that's the last thing we wanted to see. Well, you could have stopped it occurring altogether by closing down the race and not having it go ahead. You had a choice. You could have made the choice to say, 
okay, you would have lost your job probably, but if you decided we're not going to race any horses today, I've seen the light on the road to Damascus, and I think risking horses' lives for corporate profit is not good. Um, but he didn't do this. He held the race anyway, and a horse died. Um, and in in addition, he says, we've continuously taken what measures we can to make it as safe as we possibly can. Well, there you go. He's done everything he possibly could do, and still horses die. Well, what you can, what does that conclude? It means it cannot be safe in any way, and that jumps racing has to end. That's my own commentary here. But let's go back to Barney Gask in the newspaper. Accidents are going to happen every now and then. Well, now back to my commentary. 34 times more dangerous than flats racing. That's what the stats are. So that's uh, that was the Saturday at Oak Bank. And then, of course, the weekend continues because there's another race on Monday and the industry is extremely concerned, I would imagine, about what's going to happen on the next day. That's two days later on the Easter Monday. And the newspaper, this is on Sunday, again the advertiser in Adelaide. April the 17th, Oak Bank Racing Carnival, protesters push for jumps race ban at Easter Monday event. Well, of course we do, because we care about animals. Oak Bank Racing Carnival organisers will consider moving the Easter Monday meeting after perfect autumn weather failed to lift crowds. About 10,000 race drivers watched as outsiders spying on you claim the 4.95 Great Eastern Steeplechase on Monday. Um, well, this is... Um, Oak Bank Racing Club chair Barney Gask again said they are happy with the crowd. Happy they got 10,000 people. Again, history books, it used to be 90,000 people plus. So the public is fed up with this. And uh, we've got comment in the newspaper... Um, about the protesters. So, meanwhile, if, this is from the Adelaide Advertiser. Meanwhile, about 40 protesters from the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses lined the streets around Oakbank Racecourse calling for drunks racing to be banned. Protest organiser Elio Salotto said the organisation was sick of horses dying for entertainment. Every time something like this happens, it just reinforces that jumps racing can't be made safe, organiser Elio Salotto said. It just makes us more and more determined to bring this sport to an end. He said the message to punters was not to come. Well, absolutely. And Coalition Protection of Racehorses has been doing these campaigns. A very interesting thing that I've seen on these protesters is two things. Two, uh, Three main things that strike me. One is that m when members of the racing industry, employees come over to us as protesters and say they are against jumps racing and they support us. But of course they can't say that on record. And that is always very interesting. Or when members of the racing, ex-members of the racing community come over and offer their support to us, which does happen. Another thing that's very interesting is seeing people come in and then go out and join us on a demo. Sometimes not on the day itself. It happened that weekend, last weekend. We had a member of the public with us on the Monday, joining in the protest, holding up a placard, shouting in the chants against racing, and they had been in as a supporter of the racing on the Saturday. They'd seen the horse die, and they came back and supported us. 
And then the other thing is when, and I've seen this a number of times, I've only seen it on one direction, one gendered direction, and it's when a couple goes in and we say, see them leaving with the female partner berating the male partner saying, how could you take me to something like this? I don't want to see horses die. And uh, she's uh, complaining to her male partner that uh, it was not a very good form of entertainment that he'd selected uh, when a horse had died in front of them. So dreadful. That is horse racing. Absolutely shocking. Follow up with one more part of the Adelaide Advertiser's coverage. Sports Minister Leon Bignall. This is Sports Minister South Australia. Labels jumps racing barbaric following nasty fall at Oak Bank jumps race in Oak Bank. Horse euthanized. So Sports Minister Leon Bignall has labelled jumps racing barbaric and urged all trainers and jockeys opposed to it to push for the sport to be banned. He then said it's up to the racing industry to ban jumps racing. I'm just curious, like, what other part of of society do politicians say it's up to the criminals to stop what they're doing? Well, not criminals. It's up to the people doing an unpleasant activity to decide to not do it rather than the politicians create a law to get rid of it and make it illegal. I'm just trying to think. Maybe they should do that for burglary or something. Or, please, burglars, stop doing it. It's not very nice. But that's basically what he's doing here. He's got the authority, I presume, as racing minister to stop this. And all he's doing is saying it's up to the racing industry to ban it. That's pathetic. That's that's his job. That's what he's getting paid for. That's to follow the community wishes. The community wants this over, and he's doing nothing. Dear me, I could start ranting about that. It's dreadful. With an activist called uh, Kate Wilkins, and she's also known as the Sea Janitor, and she's been highlighting the damage to ocean environments um, due to rubbish that basically ends up in the ocean. We're going to hear from Kate now. So, Kate, uh, or the Sea Janitor, as you're now being called, um, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. Uh, my name's Kate. Uh, I'm a scuba diving instructor, and um, I am also the sea janitor. Uh, for the month of February, I decided that um, I would raise awareness and some money for charity as a bonus by um, diving every day under the jetties of Adelaide and picking up the rubbish that I found and just putting it on the internet and showing people uh, what was down there because um, I think most people aren't really aware of how much stuff really ends up in the ocean. Uh, indeed, it's a case of out of sight, out of mind, I would imagine. Um, so how did you get into doing this? Uh, well, I'm a scuba instructor, like I mentioned, and uh, having spent a lot of time underwater, I sort of uh, realised that um, a lot of our rubbish does end up in the ocean. And um, when I'm taking people for a, a leisurely, relaxing scuba dive, I've just sort of started picking up little pieces of rubbish as I went along and just thought, you know... Um, I wonder how much is actually down here if I dedicated entire dives to it, and um, and it just sort of snowballed from there. And you decided to make a project out of it. Um, when did that idea come together? Um, that one kind of just slipped into my mind accidentally. I thought, you know, it would be great if um, I could raise money for charity in some way. I've done it with a few other projects before, but this is my my main one that I've come up with. That raised awareness about something that I thought people needed to be aware of um, and and to actually raise money for charities who are doing things that I highly support um, in the marine and ocean conservation um, fields. So, 
yeah, it just sort of happened and I thought, you know, it was almost a personal challenge for myself as well. Like, could I fit in a dive every day in February on top of my regular dives and work? Um, and the answer is yes, but I was very tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but an interesting bit of work. Um, so, uh, look, I, I've done some snorkeling and never done any diving. Um, I have, however, heard about the big island of plastic that's circulating in the ocean. Um, uh, in the local waters, what kind of rubbish are you finding? The majority of things that I found were fishing items um, related to jetty fishing. So uh, mostly crab nets, hooks, squid jags and line. Um, there was a lot of uh, you know, glass and plastic as well, but the majority of items was fishing related. Um, so things that humans are putting down there and, um, you know, sort of not realising the impact that they have just because they, they don't see them. Um, especially as a fisherman, you fish from the surface, you don't fish from underneath. So um, it's definitely an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing with that for sure. Do these things biodegrade at all or are they going to be there forever unless we go and get them? Um, most of it will definitely be there forever. Oh. Yeah, anything made of cloth, um, can definitely break down. Um, glass tends not to over a very long period of time, and uh, plastic never. So things like fishing line, just that doesn't never ever degrades. Yeah, because I've been walking out on the um, breakwater at Williamstown in in Melbourne, and out on those rocky breakwaters, every few steps there's another length of discarded fishing line. Horrible mm. stuff. It looks horrible aesthetically, and then you realise how easy it is for animals to get caught up in that. Definitely, Obviously, yeah. when it's not fulfilling its intended purpose of actually catching fish, it's just like a trap in itself, a horrible yeah, thing. Yeah, and it is. It is totally catching the fish, but for no purpose of a human consumption whatsoever. It's just getting stuck in that line and then dying under the water um, and... and nobody's making use of that fish which is the whole purpose of fishing right yeah um so yeah it's almost counterproductive apart from small scale things what could be done i mean like what you're doing is is commendable but i'm sure it's not the solution to the to the probably tons of fishing line that's out there in the ocean yeah there is a lot of projects that um you can research to sort of support um my, my personal thing on, a, on an individual basis, less fishing from jetties or being more aware about what you're actually putting into the ocean. You know, if you're cutting a line off because it's stuck, you know, it, it's, it's going to trap something. Um, so on an individual basis, um, a bit more awareness about what you're putting into the water. Um, and when you're on the jetties, you know, things get blown off and stuff like that. But it's mostly the beach, um, things that are from the beach end up in the water eventually so any i did a couple of beach cleans as well and um they were the the cleans that i got the most items so clean up when you go down to the beach and just pick things up um when you see it it, it's really a a group effort and on the whole human race really it's not just any one person so yeah like you said mine what i'm doing is not a solution but it's just the goal is to bring awareness that um out of sight out of mind um, shouldn't be an excuse for polluting the ocean. Yeah, and what you're doing, I mean, it's had a result. I, I'd heard of you, um, and I, I'm not sure how, I guess through Facebook. Um, and you've got kind of a good angle there in terms of um, 
the sea janitor kind of label. How have you gone about publicising this? Um, I really haven't at all, to be honest. Um, one of my uh, scuba diving students actually um, called up the ABC and told them what I was doing. So I, I went in for an interview with them and um, it just sort of generated a bit of publicity through that. And uh, and people are interested because they want to know what the weirdest thing is that I've found. And there's been a lot of weird stuff. Okay, so. tell us about the weird stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing I found was the gold bracelet, and I was like, score, this is, you know, I'm going to make money out of this. Ah. I didn't. Um, but Real gold? No, it was just plated, I think. Okay. I didn't get any money for it. Um, and an electric scooter was definitely the weirdest thing I found, ah. uh, like a little motorized kid's scooter. Okay. So I... I, it had it was really buried as well, so I, I nearly didn't find it. Um, but it's been down; it had been down there for a good couple of months, I think. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to pull up. But yeah, scooters. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of sunglasses now. I'm sure. And the horrible <laughs> pictures that I've seen on Facebook of, unfortunately, the contents of the stomachs of dead seabirds seem to show up bits of sunglasses, bits of toothbrush, just, oh, what horrible photos I've seen of oh, these. disgusting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I I can't blame anyone else. I use plastic, and I'd throw loads of it away, and I That's put it. it in the bin, but some's going to get blown out of landfill or lost somewhere, you know? I've, I've plastic bags have dropped out of my bag or gone run away at some point in my life a number of times and th- yeah. things end up eventually in the ocean unless you're in the middle of a landlocked country and they're not going to get anywhere else but um what do you think the solution is i think you know there is global solutions and there are things that the government uh, can put into place you know south australia is really quite revolutionary in it's recycling and you know no plastic bags at the supermarkets everybody's used to uh, reusing and recycling their cloth bags, which I think is great, and, and small things like that that can be implemented across the state, across of Australia. Um, you know, I'm currently in WA, and I'm blown away that that isn't a thing here. Um, you know, I, I'm looking at, at the street at the moment. There's no recycling bins on the street. Um, really? Just, yeah. Wow. Um, and, and it's it's actually... You know, all through Australia, um, I was living up in Ellie Beach and there's no recycling in Ellie Beach, right on the coast of where the Great Barrier Reef is. Um, you know, one of the things that we as a country need to protect, it's, it's, it does so much for us environmentally and tourism-wise, and the people who live closest to it don't recycle. Well, that doesn't um, mean it's going in the ocean. It means it presumably it's just going in a big landfill. And for that's... sure, yeah. But, I mean, and the same thing. There's only plastic bags at the supermarket. There's no reusing of cloth bags and stuff like that. So um, projects like that that need to be implemented on a, on a township basis um, would be amazing. Um, if all of Australia could do that, I think, you know, that would be a, a fantastic start to cutting back our pollution to the local areas um, and then obviously on an individual basis attempting and just bringing some awareness of one-use plastics, straws, you know, the cup lid from your coffee cup, um, just plastic cups in general. Um, Do you really need it? Can you bring your own coffee cup? Um, Yeah, there is a lot of plastic in our lives and no one is plastic-free. No one is, you know, innocent in this, and and 
my, my myself, you know, I, I definitely use plastic as well. But um, I think it's just about awareness and and attempting to be better, you know, self-analyzing instead of blaming everyone else. Well, I, I don't think, I mean, me personally, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with plastic. Um, I'm sat in front of a microphone here creating this audio with bits of plastic on the microphone stand. It's um, yeah. that I think there's a time and place for the use of these hydrocarbon products. Um, and I, I don't think, however, coffee lids and disposable items like that, that's really the best use of, of plastics when there are alternatives like um, uh, knives and disposable knives, forks made out of bamboo, etc. can all be done and yeah. made commercially viable, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, someone could definitely tap into that industry, I'm sure. Indeed. Um, so, uh, what's the hope for the future in this? Um, government interventions, individuals changing their lives to reduce the amount of plastic ending up in the ocean. What about, since you've been working on the seashore near jetties, um, mm-hmm. it seems that fishermen aren't very environmental from what I've seen. No, I, I I have to agree with that statement. Um, and and like I said, I I don't want to sit and point fingers or blame anybody in particular. But um, I, I maybe a way to intervene with the amount of fishing items that end up in the ocean, uh, whether it's from a jetty or um, a boat, because obviously that happens more commonly than jetties. Um, is you know permits or uh, a way to monitor the amount of fishermen and fishing items that are actually going out on the ocean every day um, because there isn't really any monitoring for that. Um, And I think everybody is sort of mildly aware of the overfishing that's happening in the industry, um, but people don't seem to make the connection that they're contributing to that either. Um, It's just, you know, it's just for me, it's my own consumption, but um, it's detrimental what you're leaving down there as well. So... um, we're nominally a vegan show, but um, we we can we do discuss other topics. I mean, for me, this is an analogy of the a good analogy to compare with this is the changeover from using lead shot for shooting ducks, which I completely oppose to, um, to changing to steel shot. I mean, I'm against all of it, but. If these people are still going to do that, and the, or if the government is not going to get rid of this, then I'd rather have steel shot going into the lakes than lead shot. Yeah. Is sure. there anything that could is is there such a thing? Can biodegradable fishing line be created? I'm sure the human race has got the capability to do this stuff. I'm sure we do. And to be honest with you, it's not actually something I've looked into because I myself am also vegan and not interested in fishing. Um, yeah. But I haven't looked into it as a, a vegan fisherman at all. <laughs> um, of course. But I, I'm sure it's, it's a possibility. And again, it could be another industry that's untapped and yet sustainable. I don't know where the political will would come from, from to no. do this. But who knows? Times change, cultures change. Uh, maybe that is something. Um, a biodegradable fishing line would help save potentially thousands of millions of animals, possibly over the years. If that stuff's going to be in the ocean now indefinitely for Forever. maybe a hundred thousand yeah. years or something like that, yeah, the tragedy of that in existence is is appalling. 
and I would rather have that biodegrade than not biodegrade. For sure. The, the problem is that before it does biodegrade, it will still have an impact. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And I believe that a lot of biodegradable um, uh, products, particularly the kind of biodegradable semi-plastics, biodegrade in the presence of ultraviolet. Um, but I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a bio, I'm not a chemist, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but I believe that's the case. And down the on the ocean floor, I guess they're not seeing much um, ultraviolet light. Not so much, no. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't researched that either, but that's not a that's not a bad point. I might look into that. Yeah, but I believe it, that's yeah. what the you know, the one of the tragic things that gets in the ocean and on land is the horrible um tops of beer can um yeah. that that animal trap that comes on the top of beer cans. Um yeah. and there's a move certainly in some certainly I believe in the UK to have those biodegradable. And eventually, I've seen them go brittle, and because whenever I see those on the on the ground, I pick them up and tear them apart. So there's yeah, there's no hoops left, and then put them in the bin. Uh, and after a while, they tend to go brittle. And I believe, from the amateur level of chemistry, that I have that ultraviolet light doing that. And I guess yeah, that's not going to occur sense. in the in the. Uh, it dam. definitely doesn't happen in the ocean. No, Terrible. but I, I have seen those ones that you're talking about the um, the biodegradable yeah uh, six pack rings, and yeah. I do believe they go quite mushy as soon as they're exposed to quite a lot of salt water. All oh, right, okay. Um, it might even be pressure related, but I think it's probably just water. Yeah. So, yeah. have you seen the effect on any animals getting caught in fishing line or anything like that? Or you just? Yeah, I have seen um, a few. Um, not so much in Adelaide while I was doing it, um, but it was also part of the motivation, having seen that a couple times. Um, but, yeah, I, a lot of the times it's just been more um, the opposite side. I've just saw a lot of fish heads um, from the fishermen underneath the jetties and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Does that kind of stuff stay around the jetty? Or I guess you wouldn't know if it is getting out into the into the deeper ocean. Because you wouldn't um, see it if you're diving around the jetties. Yeah, it, it it does it does eventually make its way out, but um, yeah. it depends on the the tidal movement, the the weather, um, and and the amount of movement within the the ocean, so currents and stuff like that. Depends on your location and your locality. Are you intending to do this again? Um, I think I need a break. <laughs> it was quite full on, um, but I, I'd like to actually do it again in the coming months, um, or or just. Maybe something else. I don't know. Maybe see if I can tweak it some other way. It would be nice if you could make it a bit of a cultural thing within the diving community. Or Yeah, well, definitely. Um, and, and I definitely did try to utilize that um, with a lot of my students and the dive groups that we have in Adelaide. Um, a lot of them are a lot more um, inclined to take a mesh bag with them now when they go diving. So. Yeah that's what you put all your rubbish in as you're, you're sort of swimming along. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a few more people who are a bit more into it than than before I started. So I'm, I'm happy to have brought a little bit of awareness. So That's great. Well, I hope this takes off, actually. And, I mean, it would give a dive a kind of purpose if, or, or it would give something back um, as someone's diving to actually do that. I think it's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's a lot of projects around it as well. There's um, Project Aware and Dive Against the Breeze. They run their own um, local dives as well, and and anyone can run that. It doesn't. You don't have to be an instructor. You can just be an open water scuba diver and 
get you and a couple buddies together and, and get out there and, and then record all the data and send it off. As it's important stuff as well. That's how we implement government um, intervention as well. So it does make a difference, even if it, you're sitting there filling out paperwork, which is what I did a lot of, but it definitely makes a difference. Oh, so you're filling in reports on what you're collecting, yeah? Yeah, so I, I raised money and filled out uh, data sheets for uh, Dive Against Debris and Sea Shepherd. Um, ah. They both have separate uh, recording systems for um, items found underwater so that you can uh, log and track it all and then um, they can obviously apply for government assistance or intervention in some way. And they have proof, you know, there's just the data and statistics to say, well, this is actually what's down there yeah. and this is what we're finding. If someone would like to um, take this up, implement as part of their lifestyle of diving, um, what do you think? Um, you, you've obviously got some information there, Project Aware and um, Dive Against Debris. Um, do you have any links for those that you could um, yeah, share? Yeah, definitely. So I've found these links now. So there's a, a di- Dive Against Debris is Project yep. Aware, yes? Yes. Um, and is there a, what was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, and Sea Shepherd, um, they pretty much just have like local cleanups. And, ah, um, right. I'll just mention those. Like okay, yeah. so uh, I'll I'll just add this on. So I've just looked at the link now. Um, Kate, you said that Sea Shepherd have their own uh, kind of local um, debris collection, but then the other one I'm just looking on the internet's now, and I see there is Dive Against Debris, and that's run by Project Aware. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah. And the link for that is worldwideweb.projectaware.org forward slash dive against a debris or one word. So dive against a debris. Um, well, Kate, thanks for doing what you've done. You're welcome. <laughs> and hopefully inspiring some other people to get out there and clean up the oceans and hopefully in time change the culture so that this kind of rubbish is not getting disposed out there on the jetties and and hurting wildlife for sure i hope so that's the goal okay well have a lovely day and uh, some lovely dives ahead and hopefully speak to you soon and please get in contact if you repeat the project i definitely will thank you very much that's great see you bye see ya hello you're listening to freedom of species animal activism on the airwaves and that was an interview with Kate Wilkins, also known as the Sea Janitor, and her campaign to clean up the jetties around Adelaide in South Australia. Now, we're coming to the end of the show today. Um, this is probably going to be my last broadcast for some time, as I am going overseas. It's been a pleasure presenting on Freedom of Species, really has. And um, maybe I will be broadcasting from the UK before very long. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening from me. It's been great uh, working on this project, this show, and working with 3, 3CR, an absolutely great radio station. And that concludes today's show. We'll go out with a little bit of Hawkwind and an environmentally-related song. This is The Watcher. We are looking 